Season two of Breaking Beta is brought to you by Gnarly Nutrition. After the episode, use the code BETA15 for 15% off of your next order at gonarly.com or click the link in your show notes to have the code automatically applied. Gnarly Nutrition. Push your possible with science-backed, delicious sports nutrition. Chemical reactions involve change on two levels, matter and energy. When a reaction is gradual, the change in energy is slight. I mean, you, you don't even notice the reaction is happening. For example, when rust collects on the underside of a car. But if a reaction happens quickly, otherwise harmless substances can interact in a way that generates enormous bursts of energy. Uh, who can give me an example of rapid chemical reaction? Like an explosion? Yes, good. Explosions. I can do you one better, Paul. I have an example of a slow chemical reaction resulting in a rapid chemical reaction in the climbing context. So... I'm going to narrate a little here so we can understand this from a more scientific point of view. Let's do it. So here, our subject is experiencing a slow chemical reaction of sorts. He's likely into the anaerobic lactic system. Blood flow in the forearms has been occluded and lactate is building quickly. Come on. This is causing him to wonder if he can do it. And then upon losing contact with the rock, we have our rapid chemical reaction. An explosion. No! Fuck! Fuck! It's fucking hundred million degrees! No! (laughs) (laughs) Explosions happen in rock climbing too, Paul, particularly when it's fucking hundred million degrees. (laughs) So yeah, the the temperature limited limited reaction, right? (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Today, we are discussing a recent paper suggested to us by a listener, AJ Sabriskie from Excel Physical Therapy in Bozeman, Montana. He's also from the ClimbStrong team. Um, I thought maybe he was setting us up with this paper when I first started reading it, but now I'm I'm thinking maybe this was a really good call on his his end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a... It's definitely one of the more complex papers I've read recently. <laughs> a lot of just yeah. like pausing and thinking. I had to dig out a physiology textbook here and there. Um, had to look yeah. up some calculus terms. So I maybe got that wrong because my uh, my C freshman year of calculus when I was in a <laughs> when I was in school for biochemistry, and that didn't pan out very well. Probably just because I had a lot of fun, but um, <laughs> I had to remember some things. Yeah, totally. And I think that's good for us now and then. So thanks, AJ, for suggesting this paper. Um, Title is Climbing Specific Exercise Test, Energy System Contributions and Relationships with Sport Performance. Authors, and I'm totally going to screw this up. I'm probably going to say every name wrong. Uh, Marcin, I don't even know how to say that. Uh, Masijic. (laughs) <laughs> I know there's a way to pronounce that, and I meant to look it up earlier, and I did not. Uh, Mikhail Lubomirov, Magdalena Wiecek, Jadwiga Samura, Robert Rakowski. I have no idea how to say this name. Zbigniew? Zbigniew. <laughs> Zagula and Ralph Benecki. Uh, Frontiers in Physiology, January 22, 2022. So very new paper. And the aim of the study was to evaluate distinct performance indicators and energy system contributions in four different sports-specific finger flexor muscle exercise tests performed using an apparatus developed for comprehensive assessment of physical fitness in climbers. That's a mouthful. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's just jump into this thing because I think it's going to be a big one. You clearly don't know who you're talking to, so let me clue you in. I'm Paul Corsaro. I'm Chris Hampton. Lucky two guys are just guys, okay? And you're listening to Breaking Beta. 
where we explore and explain the science of climbing. With our skills, you'll earn more than you ever would on your own. We've got work to do. Are you ready? 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 I am. Are you? I'm in Wyoming where it's not fucking 100 million degrees, <laughs> so I, I'm absolutely ready. We're getting close in Chattanooga. <laughs> oh, gosh. I bet you guys are. Um, <laughs> it's actually snowed this morning, so yeah. we are... We're in good shape over here. Nice. Uh, this paper is dense. It's very sciencey, and I had to get really focused um, when reading this paper with my little highlighters. And at first, like I mentioned before, I was like, "Man, I think AJ setting us up." But I actually think this paper is a really great example of why we're doing this podcast to begin with. Um, you're not going to get a whole lot out of reading the abstract for this paper. Mm -hmm. I think you really have to dig in. You really have to try to understand the tables. You have to try to understand their language, which is also very science-y. Um, and it takes some real thought to figure out how to apply what's in this paper. Did you, did you feel the same way? What was your, what was your experience going in? Uh, yeah, I was, you know, I kind of looked through this here and there when it got sent and saw it was digging into some of the, I, I felt like this related to some of the testing protocols we've been seeing around in mm -hmm. the training world. And I was like, oh, cool. This will be something that I will look a little bit more into depth into what we've been seeing. Does this actually back things up? So on and so forth. Uh, I started reading, had to stop, go back and start rereading from the beginning again, just cause I got a little yeah. lost. Um, but again, I think at the end, you know, we did get a few good conclusions from this, but there's definitely some things I've got questions about. Yep, same. I thought it's a it's a lot to wade through, but some really interesting things to pull from it. So mm -hmm. uh, let's jump into the methods. In a scenario like this, I don't suppose it is bad form to just flip a coin. So basically... This uh, this study looked at four different tests. There was a maximal finger strength test and then a couple other tests looking at strength also paired with the energy system or, or specific energy systems and how they contribute to it. So we'll first look at our group of participants. So there were 13 uh, subjects for this study, all male. It's 2022. That needs to change. We know that. Yep. I'm sure we're going to keep talking about this every every paper we read. I hope that changes mm -hmm. in the future. Um, but yeah, so 13 male climbers, uh, healthy, they're experienced anywhere from 7A to 9A, um, average IRCRA, uh, onsite was around 20, um, red point was around 23.69. Um, just going back to just the French grades, just to simplify things for folks who haven't looked into the IRCRA scales yet, 11D to about 14D. So a big range of folks for sport climbing. Um, yeah, it's it's cool to have some really high exper highly experienced climbers in there, some mm -hmm. you know really good climbers in there. Um, again, though, like you said, I with the amount of uh, you know, data analysis they were doing in this paper, it would be really cool to see it done with a whole lot more people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think um, some were mostly sport climbers, some had some alpine goals, so it was a good mix of overall like climbing passion for all these people mm -hmm. too. Like everyone had a little bit different, but anyways, so what they did is they looked through these tests and just kind of started working into things. So the first they used, uh, the device called the 3d SAC. Um, basically it looks like a force plate mounted on a wall. You're standing facing the wall uh, and your fingers are on the edge, which is a 23 millimeter edge. Um, you're hanging onto that edge, so you're bending your knees, so you're hanging onto it, and then they're performing finger contractions to measure the force. Um, mm -hmm. If you could perform, if you could generate more force to lift yourself off the wall, they'd have you wear a weight vest so you never left the wall. Your shoulders were flexed at a 180-degree angle, elbows fully extended, so basically your arms straight up. So it looks like they're trying to limit any contributions from the shoulder and elbow in this uh, contraction method. Yep. And it was also open hand position, yes. it looked like. Yes. So they did uh, four tests. Um, the first test was just a maximal strength test. So pretty much they did three maximum finger flexor contractions separated by a one minute rest interval. And they just took the highest of the three and set that as your max, um, your max strength. 
So that was important because they used this max strength value as a parameter for the following endurance or capacity-based tests. So after they did this muscle endurance test, they rested 10 minutes, or after they did the first maximal strength test, they rested 10 minutes and then went into the first muscle endurance test, which was an all-out 30-second max force test. So in this one, they had to just create as much force as they could for 30 seconds. And they used their dominant arm for this yep. entire testing procedure. Just we'll get that out there too. Yeah. So that first test all out 30 first muscle endurance test was an all out 30 second maximal force test. And they looked at the peak force there, the average force and the fatigue index. So the fatigue index was basically the difference between your highest force generated and then your force at the very end of the test, they divided that by the highest again, which would give you a decimal, multiply that by 100 just to give you a good per, uh, percentage value of what your fatigue index would be. Mm-hmm. Um, after that first 30-second uh, all-out test, they did a continuous test where going back to the max strength test, which was the first one where they just found that high value of three, they had to maintain force sixty around 60% of that max, uh, max force number and keep that within 10% of that target force for as long as possible. You know, they just looked at the time mm-hmm. that they could keep that there. After the continuous test, they looked at the intermittent test, which was you're pretty much doing an 8-2 repeater there. So they generate the force and then you relax for two se- generate the force for eight seconds relax for two seconds. And again, you're trying to hit within plus or minus 60% or within plus or minus 10% of the 60% of your maximum force. I'm sure there's a better way to say that out there. But um, (laughs) so basically, I guess if we go back, we look at the continuous test and the intermittent test, you're both trying to get as close as you can to 60% of your best score from the first test. Right. And one of them, you just got to keep there as long as you can. One of them is every eight, two repeater, you have to hit that and stay there. And if you can't test is over. And right. And uh, so when they looked at the intermittent test, uh, they looked at the time and however many contractions you were able to get done before the test was stopped. And they stopped that test when the force dropped below the target zone for longer than a second. So that kind of handles and smooths out some of the noise if you know, maybe we're bouncing around a little bit as you try hard. Yeah. I was a little curious why they didn't do seven, three, which is sort of the, the more popular Mm -hmm. repeater style just in the general climbing community. I know they, they do give a, a reason for the eight, two in there, but it wasn't Mm -hmm. super clear to me. And I think just because seven, three is so popular, it would have been a little more interesting to look at. I wonder if it might have been exactly the same yeah. as eight two, you know. Oh, I think there's some interesting things we can talk about in the discussion that like mm-hmm. where we end up kind of around there, honestly. Um yep. but um I think maybe they just wanted, you know, that good four to one work rest ratio that's a little cleaner than a seven to three. And you know, we like yep. to train in that seven to three zone just because that's a 10 second block. So it's a little bit easier to train. Right. Again, I think exactly. you know, we're probably splitting hairs in terms of theory and application with a lot of these things. Agreed. Um uh, and then also, in addition to just looking at the time and reps and the force, all those uh, values, they also looked at the contributions of the energy systems. So before, during, and after the exercise test, they looked at oxygen uptake, the respiratory exchange ratio by wearing a gas exchange mask. So this entire time they're doing this test, they're wearing that mask, which kind of looks like the breaking beta um, gas mask. Yeah, that's how I'm going to hangboard from now on, actually, is wearing a gas mask only way to do it um <laughs> in addition to wearing that uh gas exchange analyzer they also collected blood samples to look at blood lactate so and they did that uh at rest before the tests and then the first second and third minute after the test after this test to look at the changes in their lactate concentration and they were able to use these values to look at a couple um a couple energy system uh, measures. So for example, the, the oxygen uptake above your resting level during the test helped find the aerobic energy system contribution. Uh, the change in, uh, the concentration of lactate in the blood helped them look at the anaerobic contribution to the test. And then the, uh, anaerobic alactic, and we'll talk about these a little bit later. The anaerobic alactic contribution was looked at, was examined because you could use their post-exercise 
oxygen consumption. So after you finish a bout of exercise, your oxygen consumption is elevated until you kind of get back to baseline. And there's two components of that. It goes up relatively quickly, this first component, and that's called your uh, fast component of excess post-exercise oxygen consumption. Then afterwards- clever, clever name. Right? <laughs> and then it kind of, <laughs> the rate of that um, oxygen consumption starts to slow down at some point, and then that becomes the slow component. So you can kind of look at right. one or both of those to determine some things. They just looked at the fast component after the fact, and that helped them determine how much- the anaerobic alactic system contributed during these tests. That was a really fantastic breakdown of their methods here. <laughs> um, I think it was a really, I think it was set up really smart. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's really interesting. Other than the 13 male climbers, I, I think the setup looks great. Yeah, I had a few things that I think maybe could have been controlled a little bit better. Um, I'm not a huge fan of just like getting set up underneath an edge and just like mm. kind of bending your knees. I feel like that could be a bit more rigorous. Mm -hmm. um, and then they said they rested an hour between every test, except there was only a 10 minute rest after the first max strength the test max going strength into test. the endurance. And yeah. I hypothesize as we go deeper into this, that maybe that could have contributed to one or two things they talk about. Um, mm -hmm. But again, I'm not a professional study designer. They are, so I'm sure they had great reasons for it. All right, let's uh, let's take a commercial break. We'll come back, talk a little on energy systems, and look at the results and the verdict. Please, all right, I really need a break here, okay? Let's be honest for a second. I'm not getting any younger or less stubborn. And as I approach my 50s with no plans to shelve my desire to continue climbing harder, I have to put a premium on products that are trustworthy, high value, and easy to implement. With careful use of gnarly creatine, collagen, and protein, I can get in more quality workouts with more power, and that means more and harder climbs. Win, win, win. Look it up, it's science. Use code BETA15, that's B-E-T-A-1-5, for 15% off of your next order at gonarly.com or click the link in the show notes to have the code automatically applied. Gnarly Nutrition. Push your possible with science-backed, delicious sports nutrition. Yes, science! Let's all go back to work, for Christ's sake, okay? All right, we are back. And I think before we go any further, um, for the folks listening who haven't um, given themselves a primer on the energy systems recently. Let's just give a quick primer on those um, before we start digging into the results. So Paul, I'm going to let you take this. Cool. So they looked at three different energy systems here, and we were looking at anaerobic, alactic, anaerobic, lactic, and aerobic. These are all components of your energy system. You'll see them in different names. People are going to argue about them. So, you know, there's always some blurriness to all this, but to put as simply yep. as possible, the aerobic energy system is what fuels some lower intensity or longer duration bouts of exercise. Oxygen is going to be involved in this. The anaerobic mm -hmm. alactic energy system fuels shorter duration, extremely high intensity uh, bouts of work. Oxygen is not used. We're not uh, performing glycolysis or producing lactate during this type of exercise. So like throwing something once as hard as you can would be a good general example of this. Right. A single move boulder problem. Yeah, exactly. And then um, the middle energy system, anaerobic lactic, also known as glycolytic. Um, I'm sure there's differing views of this, but anaerobic lactic, we're not using oxygen to produce energy and we're producing lactate because of that. And glycolysis can be a component in this. Right. That's more like a mid-length to longer boulder problem mm -hmm. or a wild iris rodeo wave sport route. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the when we, when we mention what these energy systems look like, it sounds like they're nicely bracketed and it's like, Oh, you're in this energy system now. Now you're in this energy system. But that's mm -hmm. not really exactly how it works. Uh, there's quite a bit of overlap, and there, there are going to be contributions from all three at all times. It just matters which is contributing more to the performance in what moment. Um, and if we look at, say, a long sport route, a Red River sport route, it would be really easy to say, oh, this is 
largely the aerobic system. You know, mm-hmm. you're climbing on big holds. <clears throat> you're not crossing that anaerobic threshold. But in reality, there are going to be times where you are crossing that anaerobic threshold. And um, even times, if there's like a really short crux, that you are going all the way into that anaerobic system. Um, so all three are going to be at play while you're climbing. Yeah, it's very blurry. And, you know, we need to segment these things for the purpose of exploration and understanding all this. But again, theory and application, those are two very different things. Yeah, totally. So let's uh, let's take a quick look at the results as if it are, it's possible to <laughs> look at these results quickly. Whatever you, whatever you think is supposed to happen, I'm telling you, the exact reverse opposite of that is going to happen. Okay, if I were to go over these results in detail, this would literally be the most boring podcast ever produced. Um, So we're going to look at some of the basics, some of the more interesting findings. And I've got my list of things here, Paul, but I'm also curious to see if you had other things you pulled out, which I suspect that you did. Um, The... The highest significance in terms of correlation with climbing ability, which is something we've been talking about in the beginning of this season and in the Better Call Paul episodes, was seen in the maximal strength test and the average force of the all-out for 30 seconds test. Um, So for me, this verifies the use of that max strength test Mm -hmm. as a predictor. Um, It also suggests to me though suggest is a key word here since this paper doesn't actually say this, that a max test for nearly anywhere between five and 30 seconds might see a good correlation. Mm-hmm. You know, if we're looking at the average um, that you're pulling there. Yeah. So I, I think that's really important to recognize that it doesn't have to be max strength. It can just be all out for a certain period of time and we can take that average. Yeah. And I think in terms of what you have available to you, your the person you're working with or your self ability level, what they're comfortable with, I think that gives us flexibility to kind of meet whoever's being tested where they're at and really kind of be a good coach and work in this partnership with someone instead of just forcing them to do one thing, whether they don't have totally. the right equipment or they hate it and it's miserable and things like that. So I think it's yep. cool to have these different options that are backed up by, you know, rigorous processes examining whether they work or not. Same, same. Um, the other significant predictor that was found was the force time integral of the continuous test at 60% of max. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I'm not necessarily terribly concerned about that. We've already got this, this good predictor um, of our max strength or the average of the all out for 30 seconds. I thought that was kind of interesting to me. I don't think it's something I'm going to look at cause I don't want to do right. calculus and I'm bad at calculus, but mm-hmm. I think this shows maybe an element of air quote skill in being able to very quickly adjust how much force you're mm-hmm. generating and be aware of that. Cause you know, they're getting instant feedback with this test. They know where they're at. So Having right. that Good control point. to kind of dial things in, I thought that was kind of interesting and and it kind of makes sense if you think about it. But then again, I don't have a device that can measure that and I'm not going to worry about looking at it, but it, I thought it was kind of cool. Yeah, I, I like that. I hadn't really thought about that. And they use the word in here that I had to look up. Um, let me pull it up in this paper. A lot of pages <laughs> in this paper. <laughs> the word was... Teleo anticipate, teleo anticipation. This is Boy. the sentence I texted you that I highlighted with the note <laughs> LOL after it. Um, what this means is the anticipation of the end of a physical task that allows more efficient expenditure of energy. And they, they did criticize the continuous test a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. Basically saying this allows them to adjust and not use their all out energy when they're doing this continuous test. So, um, I hadn't really looked at that as a good thing, but I I like your, your analysis of that, that it it might be a skill set that's really important. Can we talk about that sentence for a second? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. do it. So first off, I'm going to read the sentence and it's, they're right what they say, but 
if we wonder why people just read abstracts and don't want to read papers, it's because they have to wade through this. Yes. Uh, seems to indicate teleo anticipation and therefore a psychophysiological limitation of maximized activation and synchronization of motor units, as well as utilization of maximum anaerobic power at this test mobility. <laughs> like that is just a landmine of a sentence. Why? Why, why do you got to go and do this? <laughs> yeah, man, I, I have three different sentences highlighted in here for that exact same reason and we'll get to some of those yeah. <laughs> later um, and when we come into our discussion or we can jump out now i think there's things that they maybe could have done with the study design to kind of control for that a little bit so but um uh, let's let's jump into that now cool uh, what, what are your thoughts there? so basically um how i interpret that sentence it seems that people knew they had that 30 second effort thing coming up so maybe they didn't go all out right away um, mm -hmm. I think maybe it would have been interesting to look at that difference in average and split it up into um, ability groups because yep. see if, you know, some people, people who have rock climbed longer or can yeah, live in that pain versus the boulders mm -hmm. or something like that. Maybe whoever, maybe we could get that average uh, or the uh, yeah average force or the peak force because the peak force was lower in the 32nd than the max strength. Maybe right. if that peak force matched up a little closer to the max strength for the more experienced, uh, higher, higher elite climbers. Um, also, what if there is a longer than a 10-minute rest between the max strength and this continuous test? And mm -hmm. what if they had blinded these people going into the test as in like, hey, just pull as hard as you can for as long as you can. We'll tell you when to stop and mm. see if that changed it up. And cause, Yeah, so they don't know it's a 30-second thing. Exactly. So um, – that's just all the notes I had for that sentence. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, something we didn't say about the the methods is that the device that they're using, this 3D SAC thing, also does give real-time feedback to the participant that allows them to control their intensity. Um, they can see exactly how hard it is they're pulling. So if they're getting down to that 50% where it is the cutoff, they can pull a little harder or if they're getting above the 60%, they can reduce that a little bit. So mm -hmm. yeah, I think that that's super smart. Yeah. Um, they also find here that the time in the target zone for the intermittent test was two and a half times longer than in the continuous test, mm -hmm. which indicates to me that two seconds rest is indeed enough to get something back despite what I've heard some people say. <laughs> and the highest difference between the pre and post exercise lactate concentration was also shown in the intermittent test, um, greater than the continuous test, mm -hmm. which in my mind does suggest a confirmation that lactate isn't necessarily bad, that it can be used for fuel, mm -hmm. um, in these intermittent efforts. And this is something that science knows, but we still tend to misunderstand as climbers. We're constantly demonizing lactate or pump. Mm -hmm. And I also think too, because that uh, uh, length of the test was twice as long, like you're still working longer. So you're going right. to produce more of it too. Right. You're still doing two and a half more times work. Mm -hmm. um, the intermittent test also required the most total energy which I think makes sense um, of the three protocols that we're not including the max strength in this energy systems conversation here. Um, two times more than the all-out test and 3.4 times more than the continuous test. And to me, this suggests that the recovery from this sort of protocol will, will need to be more. Mm -hmm. If you have a climber training this sort of protocol, they've spent a lot more energy on this than they have uh, these other tests. So, you know, this is something again, we know, but it's worth repeating. And I think this bears that out a little bit. I think it was also interesting when they looked at the time of, you know, the eight on, uh, two off, but then changed mm -hmm. that time window to when they got above that 60% threshold and mm -hmm. then considered it off when you were below that it switched to 7.3 on roughly 7.3 on roughly 2.7 off. So it kind of ended up, if you look if you take away below that 60%, we're back at our 7.3. So I thought it was interesting as well. Yeah. I, you know, I think, 
you know, I think the seven three protocol, like you mentioned in the beginning of this, was built on the ten second block just because mm-hmm. it's convenient, um, as well as looking at the rough time that we spend on a hold versus reaching for holds. Um, however, it was designed, however that number came up with it, it ends up being a pretty good number mm-hmm. shown by this. And it, uh, I guess with this intermittent test too, just if you look at the duration or the reps completed, it didn't really reflect climbing, uh, ability right. significantly. Right. Yeah. And I was not necessarily, um, terribly surprised by that. It, it did surprise me initially. Mm -hmm. Um, that the overall duration of the intermittent test and climbing ability weren't correlated. Um, I did sort of expect to see the overall duration correlate. Um, they do a great job, however, of explaining why that might be. And, and this brings us back to the, the split of the climbers, you know, they had 13 climbers, six of them were mostly alpinists who are usually only on siding. The remaining seven combined bouldering and sport together. So they suspect that their setup wasn't quite specific enough for this group of people. And, you know, that made me wonder if they had split it into two groups, what might it have looked like? But then, of course, we've got you know, two tiny little groups that we're looking at. So I'm also glad I have an excuse not to do this test because it's fucking miserable. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, they also, in that section where they're talking about the the overall duration of the intermittent test, they this is one of the statements I have highlighted that that I couldn't believe they said. They say, the overall duration of 234 seconds reflects an extremely long-lasting red point. I have that highlighted in red. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile... Seb Buin, with his recent red point of DNA, said he took 45 minutes, which is 2,466 seconds longer than their version of an mm-hmm. extremely long-lasting red point. I wonder if maybe they're just like looking at it in a comp, a little more standardized setup. Yeah. But yeah. That would be my guess since there's like, I think six minutes is the time mm-hmm. limit for a comp climb. Yeah. And that's, yeah, it's like little under little under five little a little over four something like that so i i bet that's the case mm-hmm. um when we're looking at the energy contributions of these different uh protocols that they were using it turns out that the all-out test was shown to be highly alactic though the con- contribution of that alactic system wasn't significantly different than that from the continuous test mm-hmm. Uh, the intermittent test required the most aerobic contribution and the contribution of the lactic system was about the same in all three. Um, do you have an explanation for why the intermittent test, which we've already discussed, you know, ends up with the most lactate difference? Why does that require the most aerobic contribution? I think, you know, when we're operating those periods of low or no intensity, even those short rest periods, we're using that aerobic system to get out what we can, uh, replenish the energy substrate that we can, you know, two seconds isn't a long time, but it's time. So I think, you know, it's working there. Like the aerobic fuel, the aerobic system fuels a lot of our recovery. So that makes sense to me when I read it. Totally. Same. I think it's a, I think for some folks, if they haven't looked deeply into the way energy systems work when we climb, that could be a confusing thing. This makes us more pumped. How is it more, how does it require more aerobic contribution? And because it's cleaning out that system, essentially, it's helping you recover while you climb. Yeah. Um, Ultimately, it looks like their three tests do a good job of looking at the different energy systems and sort of splitting up those energy systems. Um, and we're just giving another green check mark for using max strength mm-hmm. as a predictor of climbing ability, which I like. Yeah. Um, what were some of the results you saw, if they're different from what I've already said, that that you wanted to talk about? Um, those are kind of the two big ones I had highlighted. Like, you know, um, okay. I didn't uh, – like, you know, I was going into it thinking that there was going to be a little bit more backing up that intermittent test. Like we just talked about, like, you know, this doesn't mm-hmm. really give me a reason to use that. Um, it also says, you know, I guess 
uh, I guess we're going to go into what this paper doesn't say in a little bit, but um, yeah, I think go ahead. let's, let's just jump right. in there. What, what are you seeing that it does not say? It doesn't say that all four of these tasks should be part of a battery or that any of them should be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't say that gas exchange is necessary for assessment at all right now for, mm-hmm. yeah, those are the two big ones for me. Yeah, I, I agree completely. It also doesn't say you have to be constantly training up all of these to be a complete climber, Mm-mm. you know, that that's going to depend entirely on your profile as it stands now, as well as what your goals are. Yeah. And I don't think this <clears throat> paper's making that claim though, either, no, even in the abstract. I think people take some of these things that come out and use it to back up the claims they're making. Exactly. Um, but yeah, I thought, you know, overall, I thought this was well-designed. It looked at what it wanted to look at and it came with some applicable conclusions for me. Like, you know, I could look into a little longer continuous hang. I know we kind of do something like that in our assessment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it backs things up, I think. Yeah, let's, uh, let's jump into what some of those applications might be. I got all these little pieces like they're all part of the story right but they don't mean much on their own but when you start telling me what you know we start filling in the gaps i'll have them in lock them before the sun goes down all right um one of the interesting statements that i pulled from this that they make is regarding the use of max strength versus the average force from the all-out test Mm -hmm. uh, as an indicator of climbing ability. They make the case that because of the specifics of lead climbing and bouldering and them being so different, the fact that the overall time spent can be between 30 seconds and 10 minutes or, you know, in the case of Seb Buin, 45 minutes, um, then the average force from the all-out test could prove to be the most relevant approach. Mm -hmm. And while I... I agree with this statement. I think it requires testing equipment that not everyone has. Like oh. we were, like we talked about in the beginning of this, um, you need to meet your client, your athlete where they are. And that might be that they don't have that equipment. Um, they may not be able to produce a 30 second all out, um, max force. Um, they just might not be at that level yet where they can express their ability in that way. Um, I, you know, you need at least a 10 deck or something similar to get that mm-hmm. done. Um, I believe it's possible with the 10 deck anyway. I mean, and that's and, probably the most cost effective solution right. for that that's out there. And even that that's not cheap. So some folks may not have the privilege of having access to exactly. one of those at all. Exactly. And I prefer simple more often than not. So I think whatever's simpler for you works fine for my purposes. And like, like I mentioned earlier, it sort of seems like you could go anywhere from five seconds to 30 seconds, um, giving an all out effort. And it's going to give you a pretty good correlation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think those, the, it is interesting where they do say, and I have it, I have it highlighted uh, where it says the max force is likely the most decisive physical performance indicator in sport climbing. I thought yeah. that was a pretty uh, strong statement to make. I, I think we know it's important, but I don't think anything in this paper says it's the most decisive performance or physical performance indicator. Yeah, I think that if we look at all of the other papers we've seen that look at max force as as an indicator, I think the you know the sum of all those gives us the idea that mm-hmm. it's one of the the biggest predictors, you know, um, one of the most decisive things we can look at um, of the things we can measure. You know, there, there very well may be a factor we aren't measuring or can't effectively measure that's better to look at. Mm-hmm. We don't really know, but we have max strength or at least the max force and the ability to measure that. So I think it's really nice that we do. Hundred percent, and we have this backing it up. Um, something interesting that really isn't taken into account in this paper. Um, we can look at the example of like, are you familiar with the Nike Sub Two Marathon project? No, with uh, Elliot Kipchoge, marathon runner, where they oh, the, yeah, a, a yes, team of Nike scientists was trying their best to get him under under two hours for the marathon. Mm-hmm. Um, during that the researchers found an adverse link between VO2 max and running economy um, that said 
a higher VO2 meant the runners had less economy in most cases. Um, and they, you know, they suggest that it's because they have a higher VO2 max. They don't need to be as economical. And there, there's a very small percentage of runners who have both. And those are the best runners. Mm -hmm. Um, that's also been found in cycling. And I have to imagine that this is also the case in climbing to some degree that movement economy is somewhat dictated by the energy system efficiency of the climber. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and vice versa, I think. Um, so does this say that maybe we should learn to climb better before we worry about training up the energy systems individually? I think it depends on the climber. (laughs) (laughs) It depends. Impossible question, but, Um, but I think it's worth asking, right? it, It shouldn't be ignored in favor of just training pure physiology. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's fun to look at these two at these things as if we're like video game characters, mm-hmm. like, uh-oh, this next level requires the alactic system to be this powerful. It's like an RPG uh, style, we, dump a couple points yeah, into your like, glycolytic ability. Exactly. We need a few more points. Let's take them from over here. Better train <laughs> up for this next level. But that's not ha- how it really works in real life. And, you know, our energy system contributions are very much controlled by not only the physiological demands of the sport, but also our reaction to the situations. Like we can grip too hard. We can hold our breath. We get scared. We make mistakes and panic. Our technique falls apart when we're pumped Mm -hmm. instead of utilizing lactate as an energy source. There are just so many soft skills to learn and, and gain some degree of mastery over before we need to really worry uh, about applying this sort of training on this super granular mm-hmm. level, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, and those skills are just impossible to learn using any finger training protocol. So I think that shouldn't be forgotten. And it, I'm not saying it's a fault of this paper for not mentioning it. They, they did what they set out to do, I think to some degree. Yeah. They weren't looking at that. Yeah. I agree completely. Uh, there was one thing from the paper that I, did would want to just look, I was kind of looking back through the paper scene if there's anything else I wanted to add, but I'm just going back to, I guess, study design, um, how they were talking about how they, when they looked at the blood drawn, mm-hmm. um, they took from the opposite of the working hand. I'd be interested to see if that was any different oh, from the, yeah. from if they figured out a way, cause I know it's going to be tough to do if we're using that hand for further tests. Um, right. I don't and, use you know, my pinky so they could test there. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I mean, and you know, like a surface patch isn't going to look at that right. We need, right. you know, an actual blood sample. So um, find out a way to do that. Because, you know, we had, there is a lot of hypothesis. There's some evidence out there that, you know, the work we do in climbing can be pretty localized to the forearms in terms yeah, of lactate totally. buildup. So I think that maybe could be a little more illuminative on that front too. That's a good catch. I didn't catch that they were testing from the opposite hand, but that makes total yeah. sense that they yeah. would, I suppose. Yeah, but I think it'd be interesting to see the other way around. Yeah. I, I wonder, you know, and I know this study can't be set up or maybe not that it can't, but it would be very difficult to set up a study that does these similar sorts of tests, but in a climbing on the wall sort of protocol versus just a finger strength protocol. Mm -hmm. Um, I would be curious to see how things change based on the level of climber, uh, when you do it with climbing involved, as opposed to just pulling. Um, I have to think that people are going to be reaching failure way before the energy system dictates that they're failing. Mm -hmm. You know, they're going to fall off because of technique degrading or them just giving up or whatever. Um, And it just makes me wonder if mimicking these sorts of demands with on the wall climbing while training is a, a little bit of the best of both worlds, especially for the like inner up to intermediate level climber i'm pretty sure there's some tread wall like with the gas exchange mask mm-hmm. deals type going on again that's not going to be as specific as the more localized things but right could be useful to dig those up and maybe do a future episode on that yeah that that's probably a good idea actually i would i would love to see if these protocols have been used in a, a tread wall designed study mm-hmm. man i think we just did uh, the impossible and that this I think we got through this thing in a pretty concise manner. 
I thought we were going to push past an hour on this one, to be honest, but uh, I'm pretty, <laughs> I'm pretty psyched on this turnout. You know, that's what we set out for this to be, right. Is try and make things that are wildly complicated, sometimes necessarily so, but like get them out there in a way that's, that's not as, so I'm psyched on that. Yeah. I, you know, I probably spent four times as much time reading through this paper as we did just discussing it. So checks out. Um, I, you know, that's what we're here for. Um, anything else from you on this thing? I've got one sentence I would love to read. I read my sentence. Let's hear yours. <laughs> I just thought this was hilarious. Um, uh, this is the most sciencey description of what climbing looks like possible. Uh, in rock climbing, the gravity force is countered by grip fixation and active hanging position using the upper limbs as a fixed point comparable to a relative calm pendulum or with leg support, ideally comparable to a horizontally attached uneven tripod. So <laughs> next, next time... <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Next time somebody asks you to explain rock climbing, that's how you need to describe it. Like to your grandma, That that's how you explain rock climbing. Or if your partner's at the crux, yell for them to be a calm pendulum. <laughs> or a horizontally attached tripod. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, you can find both Paul and I all over the internets by following the links in your show notes. You can find Paul at his gym, Crux Conditioning in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Show some love to yourself by visiting this season's sponsor, Gnarly Nutrition at gonarly.com. If you have questions, comments, or papers you'd like for us to take a look at, hit us up at community.powercompanyclimbing.com. Thanks again to AJ from Excel Physical Therapy in Bozeman for suggesting this paper to us. Hope we did it justice. I would love to hear your feedback on it. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the show. Leave us a review. And please tell all of your friends who have their energy system training totally dialed in, but say take as soon as they get pumped that you have the perfect podcast for them. We'll see you next week when we discuss embodied perception in sports and whether or not your climbing ability determines how big the moves look on your project. We're not talking about a hangboard next week. Let's do it. <laughs> It's done. You keep saying that, and it's bullshit every time. Always. You know what? I'm done. Okay? You and I, we're done. Breaking Beta is brought to you by Power Company Climbing and Crux Conditioning, and is a proud member of the Plug Tone Audio Collective. For transcripts, citations, and more, visit powercompanyclimbing.com slash breaking beta. Let's not get lost in the who, what, and whens. The point is, we did our due diligence. Our music, including our theme song, Tumbleweed, is from legendary South Dakota band, Riff Lord. This is it. This is how it ends.
Don't not yo, yo.